Ron Chu has spent his life telling stories. Stories that reveal hidden history, stories that inspire and mobilize, stories that nurture and heal, new stories, old stories, stories just being born. I think you get the picture, but maybe not. That's because Ron is not what you'd think of as a traditional historian or a bard. He does not hold forth for spellbound audiences with his story. Quite the contrary, because he's a quiet teller, more like a story whisperer than a shouter. A whisperer who nonetheless has moved the crowd and the proverbial dial through his sharing of stories that have made a manifest difference in the community that he loves. A difference that has demonstrably improved the lives of Seattle's Asian Pacific Islander community. And by extension, helped that city reckon with its unsettling history with that community. This week on Change the Story, Change the World, we'll be talking to Ron about his transformative work as a journalist, museum director, a healthcare executive, and of course, a lifelong spinner of tales. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, listening in the kitchen. Happy New Year. This is uh, Lunar New Year today. Right. Year of the Tiger. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully this new year will bring some degree of recovery and growth. Who knows what stage we're in right now? It's limbo. Right. So before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Ron is speaking to us from the traditional land, past and present, of the Duwamish people in Seattle, Washington. And my part of this conversation is originating from Alameda, California, which is located on the unceded homelands of the Chochenyo people of the Muikama Ohlone tribe. So, Ron, having known you and your work, it's clear that the idea of a story, particularly a Community story is not an abstract concept to you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but more like an essential aspect of life. Yeah. So I'll begin asking, how do you describe the story of your life path, particularly to people who are not familiar with it? What comes up? What rises? The one through line, as I look back at a career that seems disconnected, and broken up into different pieces and phases. As I look at it uh, a little more deeply, really what's connected my whole career and life is the pursuit of stories, pursuit of stories that have not been told, stories that have been distorted, stories that have been marginalized, and then searching for those stories as a way of finding meaning and connecting to other people. As a young child growing up in the 1950s and 60s, my parents being immigrants, there were murmured stories that they told about my grandparents and that other generation that came to America during a period of exclusion. But there were whispered stories. And when you asked questions, they didn't really want to tell you all of what they knew, largely because being Chinese in America was an illegal act. Chinese could not come here because of the exclusion laws. And so those were elusive stories. As I grew up and began working in the Chinese restaurant where my father was a waiter and listening to those uncensored moments when waiters would reflect on their lives and talk about the laws and people and places, my ears perked up because these were other stories. Later, I 
pursued a communications degree, editorial journalism at the University of Washington. And that was really about then developing the skills to, to write stories, to interview people, and then to bring them to light. I became a journalist, newspaper editor in the International District community of Seattle, became museum director at the Wing Luke Museum, and then entered healthcare. And then most recently, as you know, I produced a memoir and gathered them all in one place. So, Ron, you speak about this as though it's so obvious how you got from A to B. So let me go back to the beginning. You're a kid. You're growing up in this community. Stories are all around you, some of them obvious, some of them whispered, as you say. And somewhere in the back of your mind, you decided, well, the profession I want to pursue is about very intentionally gathering stories, telling stories, revealing stories. You know, it's a long journey from being a kid, listening in the kitchen, to becoming a journalist, an activist, a museum director, and a healthcare administrator. Could you talk a bit about what spurred you on, particularly to your unique approach to being a community journalist? As I mentioned, Bill, I grew up in the restaurant. I spent 10 years from age 13 through my college years busting dishes in a Chinese chop suey restaurant. Didn't make a lot of money back in those days. Of course, certainly my dad didn't because wages were really dependent on tips and not so much pay because literally during that time period when I was working uh, side by side with him in the late 60s and 70s, I mean, he made a dollar an hour. So that, those are the wages. It wasn't much to support a family on. But I just had this intense curiosity about these people that I didn't see reflected in my textbooks, on TV, in the mass media. And so I said, I'm going to become a writer. I want to become a journalist. So I went to the University of Washington and uh, pursued a journalism career. I was denied an opportunity to rise at the University of Washington daily to an editorial position, which I applied for. Long story, discrimination complaint that got settled. But what happened was because I couldn't get a job in the mainstream press, I came back to my community, the Chinatown International District, and started working on an ethnic community newspaper that served the community. And so that, that's really where my skills were honed. And again, my pairing of my love of stories with the people that I grew up with, including my father and the waiters and my mother worked as a sewing woman in the big factories that they used to have in downtown Seattle. And so it's all really about trying to put those uh, hidden stories in some public form. And that gave me a sense of value that I could contribute something. Back then at the beginning, working for a newspaper that is committed to a neighborhood, a group of people and their particular stories seems to be very different from the kind of mainstream journalism where there's a vast geography and editors assign and journalists cover, you know, whatever it is, Man Bites Dog or The Traffic Wreck. It actually seems like you cut your teeth on a different kind of journalism. Yeah, it's, it was totally different. And the sad, ironic thing, Bill, is during that time period where I worked for 13 years as a community journalist in the International District, the mainstream press um, would always mine our stories 
for sources and then basically didn't attribute things, which they lifted. And sometimes there were big events, such as back in 1983, what they called the Wami Massacre, the murder of 13 individuals in a gambling establishment in the neighborhood. Police were called to Maynard Alley just before one o'clock in the morning. There, they found a man lying in the sidewalk with a bullet in his head. The man directed police to a nearby doorway. The door was forced open. Inside, police found 13 people lying in a sea of blood. And they came and covered the event because it was a sensational event. They also mischaracterized the community. But first place they came was Ron, give me some sources. And, you know, and then they lifted things from our stories. So, so we were valuable to them at key moments. And at other times, we were just background noise that they ignored and didn't give us the professional regard that I thought we deserved, given the limited resources and the constraints we were working under. Would it be accurate to say you had a very different and specific mission and intent as journalists that had a focus on accountability to your community? Our audience and what we were trying to do, Bill, was very different. We were trying to provide some accurate coverage. We were trying to unravel stereotypes. We were trying to provide voice to people who had never appeared in the media. So those are very different purposes. And then we provided training ground for a lot of emerging journalists of my generation because there were not very many Asian American journalists back in that day. And so it's about opening doors and providing different perspectives and, and then building community because we, we were on the ground. We did a story. If you screwed up, you heard about it, that they walked in your newsroom and they told you what you screwed up on. Because these are people you serve very directly. So it's a much more intimate, I think, uh, relationship. So you talk about misrepresentation, which has a long history that obviously continues. But having a newspaper a vehicle, having a place where there's a commitment to journalism that is a two-way conversation rather than just a one-way reporter reports, end of story kind of interaction. Did you have a sense that you were in a partnership with your constituents in a way, telling the story with them rather than just, you know, coming up with whatever is interesting as a headline? Yeah, absolutely. So remember at the time that I was working in the ethnic community press. There were a lot of development pressures, gentrification happening within the neighborhood. You know, they built the Kingdom in the mid-1970s, which had a huge impact on the neighborhood. And without us, it wouldn't have been a vehicle for talking about the preservation of housing for our seniors in the neighborhood, because they would have bulldozed those places to make room for parking lots. The environmental impact the smoke, the traffic jams, pollution, all of that were concerns of ours. So we brought those concerns to public officials and talked about mitigation. Well, how, how are you going to fix up these hotels so our seniors can live in these places and preserve them, not tear them down? How can we find ways to create services for these folks? Because you've neglected them for years and you're just going to run uh, roughshod over these folks again displace them, but did you ever realize they have never seen a doctor before? You know, that there's, they don't have refrigeration, there are rodents in their places, they have no electricity. These are things that really were very much, I think, much more important and central. And again, working in that arena, 
really kept you in touch on the ground with what was happening, what was real? It sounds to me like more than just reporting. And I think you said this in your memoir, that if you're going to report in a community, with a community, one way or the other, you're going to end up as some kind of an advocate. It's just going to be part of the territory. And it sounds like the continuing track record of the examiner has been to have an impact above and beyond just reporting, to actually help the people change the story. Yeah. There, there, when I was attending the University of Washington in editorial journalism, the big word that was flaunted in front of you was objectivity. As I began working in the community, I realized, first of all, is there such a thing as objectivity? Because if you're sitting in a different place and your work you view differently is an easy term. Working in the ethnic community press, advocacy became important. The notion of objectivity, I agree to a certain extent with the idea of fairness. And I think you need to be fair and present different perspectives. But how can you be objective when um, sitting still and watching injustice happen and watching people go without and watching inequality in your city? How can you stand by and not um, and say that's all right as a journalist with skills to tell stories? And I would describe myself as a, a person trying to be fair, but who is also an advocate for community interest. Part two, reinventing the museum. So you ended up spending 13 years at the Examiner, is that right? Yeah. But somehow you ended up sitting in an office running a museum. Now, I know it's not that simple. Could you tell the story of how a community journalist not only ended up running a museum, but also reinventing what a museum can be in a community setting? Yeah, it's a little bit of a, you know some happenstance. The Wingwick Museum uh, at the time I was working at the International Examiner was a museum still in its birth stage. It was a small historical society, had a budget of about $100,000, one staff person, fairly sleepy, not a lot of visitors. That was a storefront, right? A small storefront. Open part-time was debatable if you went there on a given day, whether anybody would be there or whether it would even be open. But they were struggling with some financial survival issues. So Betty Luke, who's the younger sister of Wing Luke, a former Seattle City Council member who the museum was named after, approached me one day and said, Ron, we're really struggling here at the museum. Uh, you should apply to be director of this museum. And I said, Betty, I don't know anything about museums. I'm a journalist. And so you don't have to be a museum person because it's a, such a small place and you could do whatever. She said, if somebody doesn't come in and inject some new life into it, the museum will have to close its doors. And she was somewhat tearful and so forth. And she said, you have some more community organizing skills. You know a lot of people in the community. So, so just try it out. So I went to the museum and my instinct, Bill, really was, I wasn't interested in the objects, the artifacts. I was interested in people's stories. And so I centered my work in that. And we began doing exhibitions centered not on objects, but on interviews. And remember, I'm drawing from my journalism background because I'm thinking, let's do the interviews, these folks and get their perspectives. 
And certainly we did have objects, artifacts, people shared photographs, treasured belongings and so forth. Those came secondarily. So through that process, we invented this story-based museum model that also was about bringing ordinary people, people who could share their perspectives, eyewitness storytellers, community elders, students, activists, into the process of creating these programs. And it was a very novel idea at the time because people were really drawing from their collection uh, of objects that had been stored away. And my, my thought was, well, like, let's start with the stories. I mean, if there some objects are relevant, let's use them. But I also was about not so much building a physical collection because that was about taking things from people. I said, can we borrow it for the exhibit and then you can have it back? So again, the thinking was so different that I, I was considered a little bit of a nut in my beginning years. I also talked about the exhibit should, what's wrong with advocating? It's not simply about looking at the past and distancing ourselves, but seeing how what we talk about in the gallery has relevance to community building and can improve the community. Oh, isn't that advocacy wrong? Yeah, but nothing wrong with that. I see a community dying in the face of gentrification, large-scale developments like stadium and so forth. We need to protect the community. We need to preserve it. We need to uh, let out these stories and give people a form for this. That, that's how it really started until uh, I was there 17 years. Now, I remember visiting the storefront first, and I believe the exhibit that was there at the time was on the internment camps, right? And I know that that was a coming out for you and for the new version of the museum. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, Bill, my first big exhibit after I became director of the museum. I came into this place that was dying, that it had no visitors, that was very lethargic and didn't have a whole lot of relevance to the community. One of my first acts was to cancel several exhibits that were scheduled and I got a few people pissed off. It was a Persian miniatures exhibit that the Seattle Art Museum had turned down and the person had worked out a deal with the previous director to have it at the Wing Lu. Then there was a modern Indonesian art exhibit. So those are the featured exhibits and I, I said, what relevance does this have to the local community, the Asian American community? I said, the 50th anniversary of the incarceration of Japanese Americans is coming up. Let's do an exhibit that engages our local Japanese American community of which 10,000 Japanese Americans were incarcerated from Seattle, basically lost everything, forced into concentration camps during World War II. Let's share their stories. Let's work on this. Now, the previous director had actually applied to the National Endowment for the Humanities for a grant to support this. It got turned down. The NEH said didn't have enough academic scholars to drive the work. So I, I looked at the, the rejection and all that, and I said, screw it. We don't need the NEH. Our scholars are the people who lived this experience because we're going to allow them the opportunity to share what they went through so that their children and grandchildren know what happened, so that they also raise the issue of what this country did to people solely on the basis of their race and ancestry. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, 
removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast states to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. Their evacuation did not imply individual disloyalty, but was ordered to reduce a military hazard at a time when danger of invasion was great. Two-thirds of the evacuees are American citizens by right of birth. The rest are their Japanese-born parents and grandparents. The people are not under suspicion. They are not prisoners. They are not internees. They are merely dislocated people, the unwounded casualties of war. That was the spin on the internment broadcast in 1944 by the War Location Authority of the U.S. Office of War Information. It was called A Challenge to Democracy. Two-thirds of the folks who were incarcerated were American-born citizens. There was no due process. They basically lost everything. So create this exhibit. Over a six-month period, we had over 10,000 visitors. The exhibit rescued the museum. It transformed the community. There was a recreation of one of the barracks from one of the camps. It was very moving. And there were people who came there who then had a way to tell their children what happened. We had a way for educators to then enter the picture and tell that story. The majority of the comments were positive, but it's sad though, you had racial terms used, Japs, other things. There, you saw some of this undercurrent of what we even see today, this xenophobia, this racism, that, that still is here today, but at least we had a vehicle to educate people. So at some point, you have the audacious idea that somehow the storefront could be just a little bit bigger. For me, the most inspiring thing was when you took me over to the Cognac building, which at the time, when we walked through, it seemed like it was auditioning for the wrecking ball. Could you talk about the history and the importance of that building and how in the world it came to be that it was first still intact and then how you managed to grab it and transform it into a center for culture in the community? That, that was a heavy lift, as I'm sure you realized. With the birth of this community-based museum organizing model, we soon ran out of room. We were having our exhibits in other locations. The Bon Marche, which later became Macy's, which is now gone, they featured one of our traveling exhibits. Some of the community colleges featured exhibits that we shipped out to them. The incarceration exhibit actually went uh, around the state and actually out of state because we retooled it for display. We were in desperate need of more space. We began looking at, well, what are our options? At the time, space was much more available, for example, on the east side over in Bellevue, and it hadn't become priced out as it is today, but you could get vacant land, build a new museum there. We looked in the International District and we were really left with limited options because uh, the area is filled with a lot of these workman hotels that house these bachelor men who came here in the early years to work on the railroads, to work in a lot of the laboring jobs, lumber industry and salmon canning. So in order to stay in the neighborhood, there, there were limited choices. We looked at this one particular building, there were actually two buildings separated by an alley. And the buildings had been built originally by 200 
Chinese pioneers who came around the turn of the century, created a, a corporation and developed these two buildings. There's the East Gungic building and the West Gungic building. I began talking to the descendants of those original shareholders who were in their 70s and 80s about redeveloping those buildings to preserve their history because they were the legacy of our original pioneers. We realized we didn't have capacity to do both. So we picked the, the one that was the easiest to reconstruct into a museum and began a fairly audacious capital campaign to reconstruct it into a, a museum to preserve the historic apartments and spaces, but then to break apart some of the spaces and, and make them into new community spaces. At the time we started this campaign, we had a budget of less than a million dollars and we were trying to raise $23 million. People said, you're crazy. There's no way you could do this because the scale is just too big. But my faith, Bill, was really in this, again, this community organizing model that through the support of the community from the grassroots, we could raise the money. And we did. We exceeded our goal and were able to open in the new space in 2007. I have to say, uh, one of the most moving experiences I had during my time in Seattle was when you took me to the building and we wandered up and down the stairs and into those little rooms and gathering spaces where the men lived. Could you talk about what was there in that raw space, ready to be honored and preserved? Can you take us there? It's, it was at the time we decided to acquire the building. It was a three-story, as I say, workman's hotel with a tiny little cubicle apartments that served bachelor men who were laborers. Many of them were not married. Many of them had wives in China that they couldn't bring here because of the exclusion laws. So they lived in these spaces, communal toilets and so forth. When we got the building, it was mostly vacant on the upper floors, which is where the apartments were, covered with pigeon poop, windows broken, boarded up with plywood. It was a mess. But the infrastructure was there. There were objects left behind. There was a big Chinese family association space with a coffered tin ceiling that had been abandoned. There were upstairs balcony rooms. There used to be railing around the upper level, which had been taken down because it had collapsed partially. Down below, there were import-export shops that were still functioning, some vintage restaurant spaces, and there were some ch still existing Chinese family associations. These were clubs of people who shared the same surname, came from the same villages. So the Luke Association was there, the Lee Association was there, the Wong Association used to be there, the Yi Association, so forth. Here is Oak Tin Association President Bill Chin in a 2008 Seattle Times video describing the scene at the Kunyik building in the early 1900s. In those days, I mean, it was a community bath, you know, and they all had rooms like, like a dormitory, you know, and... Uh, down the hall, there'll be a there'll be a powder room. You know, it was all men living here, and I could understand why because in those days immigration was so tough on the Chinese people that they couldn't get their children and wife over. But they all got along. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, 
I guess they got together and play Pai Gyu and play Mahjong and stuff like that. You got to hand it these old timers. They had it really rough. The reason why they formed this association was for more or less for protection and security. You know, somebody wants to have an extra grind against another member. You know, they will, they will go to up to the Oktian Hall in front of the council and decide who's right, who's wrong. That's so it was an odd mix of abandoned, deteriorated spaces above and dying Chinese associations below and some restaurants that were on the verge of closing and some import-export shops that, you know, were hanging on. So it wasn't just abandoned. It was a living, breathing community space that meant something to the people there. Yeah. So probably even more difficult than raising money was how do you build community support from all these diverse stakeholders? But because of the program work we did in helping share the stories of the elders and the associations and the early Chinese history, the discrimination, people stepped up and said, yeah, a new museum, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll move out. We'll support you. We'll fundraise for you. It was an amazing journey, Bill, of those folks stepping forward to be the underpinning of a groundswell that allowed us to raise over $23 million from an organization that had no donor base, had no donors. Remember also, too, the other thing I share with folks, it wasn't simply a Chinese community, because as we looked at the history of the building, well, Japanese Americans were there, African Americans who worked down the street as porters and worked at Union Station, Native Americans, Italian Americans. So it was a multi-layered, multi-ethnic story that was just waiting to be mined. Yeah, I remember it already had the bones of the living museum it ended up becoming. It had little artifacts in it that made you want to ask where did this come from and scribbles and drawings that were literally stories unto themselves. And I remember back when you were in the storefront, you said, when you ask people just to rummage around in their attics for things that would trigger stories, you mentioned people didn't think anybody would be interested in those things or their stories. And then having the storefront and this amazing new space really energized and involved all these people. Yeah. But one maybe physical metaphor for what the space is, and the folks who haven't visited really should. It's amazing. But inside the building, the way it's constructed, there are two interior light wells around which the apartment units were built. And you think about it back in the day, you didn't have an air conditioner. You didn't have uh, proper ventilation, except through the interior windows that were opened. You can imagine people opening their windows and talking to their neighbors across the way. So we preserved those interior light wells and then took off the roof covering that had been built back sometime after the building was um, first opened and then opened the building to the sky. And then you began to get a sense of what life was like and if you walk through it, it echoes with stories of the past. You could just envision that there's an eerie presence. Somebody from Paul Allen's foundation came in, and the first thing she mentioned, she said, Ron, there's this eerie feeling. I come in this space, it just gives me the chills. And what she was referring to was just the presence of all these people who left behind their stories and it was about the process of mining all these stories and then bringing it, them to another generation. And that was a marvelous thing to do. 
The Wing, as it is referred to these days, is now a venerated community organization that is regarded by many of its constituencies as more than an institution, more like a conversation about a proud and vital history that is still being revealed. Here are some community members reflecting on what that means to them in a 2018 museum video. The wing is at the core of that kind of conversation. So the museum is vital to really tell the whole story. Your identity is acknowledged and regarded and your stories are being told and that's why it is so important to me. I walk through the wing and I feel like these exhibitions are love letters. You know, they're love letters to our children who have not been born to teach them how to navigate through the world. Part three, healing the unforgotten. 17 years at Wing Luke seems like a long time, but then you did a quick sidestep into healthcare of all things. Yeah. How in the world did you get there and how does it connect to the previous path? 17 years, brand new museum. I was exhausted. So it was time to move on and pursue something else. So I, I briefly did some work for the Gates Foundation, helping advise them on their visitors uh, center, which was being developed at the time taught at the University of Washington in the museology graduate program. But, but those are places that were more rest stops. They didn't inspire my passion in the same way that the community has always. When I was at the University of Washington, I, I was approached by the director of the International Community Health Services. It's a network of a few community clinics that serve the immigrant refugee population, mostly the Asian Pacific Islander community, and then actually quite, quite a few other refugee communities as well. But the director said, Ron, come down and help us fundraise. We're hitting a struggle right now. Was, and I told this person, I said, I don't want to fundraise anymore. I'm still tired. He said, well, think about it. We'd love to have you here. An incident happened that I didn't share in the memoir, which really changed my mind. I live on Beacon Hill in Seattle in a largely Asian immigrant pocket. And the mother of one of my son's friends called me because she was having a medical emergency. Her son was having trouble breathing. So she called me, didn't speak English, and she said, I need help. So I called my healthcare provider to try to get some advice. The person said, this person isn't part of our network. We can't provide advice because there's liability. And meanwhile, I got this mother on the other line and she's freaking out that her son is going to die. So the next thing I did is I called the director of International Community Health Services, who I knew, and she immediately connect, connected me with a bilingual Chinese-speaking doc, and they talked the, their way through the crisis. After that incident happened, I thought about it. I said, I need to help. I need to come back down. So I called the director again. I said, yeah. So I joined... ICHS as the foundation director, raising money for the community clinics. Because I had some skills and I felt 
if I can help, I should. So I was back in fundraising again. And then during that time, we built a new clinic in Shoreline, built a new clinic in Bellevue, opened a mobile dental clinic, opened a vision clinic in Chinatown. And I'm still doing some work right now, raising money for an aging in place senior care facility on Beacon Hill. And I told the director, I said, hey, I, this, is, this is it. I, no more. I want to get back into writing. So that's where I'm ho- hoping to land in this next period. So now I'm wondering, as you move forward, what stories are you going to tell, particularly in this odd and strange moment that we're living through here that's affecting everybody in a deep and profound way? Boy, the, the so many stories that are out there. I'm sure you feel the same way too, Bill. Like, uh, which ones do I grab onto? Which ones do I let go of? I've uh, started doing some more writing for the International Examiner, returned to some of my journalistic roots, mostly centered on people who I think are unacknowledged or wouldn't otherwise, people wouldn't know about. I want to do a children's book. So I'll be collaborating with probably a, a graphic artist on that. Perhaps another book collection of stories, maybe from the neighborhood, the Chinatown International District. There's more to be told there. I'm currently working on an audiobook version of my memoir as well. That's a lot of audio. It is, because it's a big book. Uh, And just for our listeners, it's an extraordinary resource. It's called My Unforgotten Seattle. It's an antidote, I think, to our collective memory loss uh, as so much Seattle history seems to go by the wayside, and Seattle moves into its new story, Lickety Split. You've obviously culled many stories from your journalism and from your work with the community. And it's received a remarkable audience. I just uh, a couple of days ago did a Zoom book talk for a group of educators, mostly native Seattleites, and they just really appreciated the fact that there were so many un told parts of our local history that had not been captured before. As I mentioned, the garment industry. Who knows about the fact that the underpinnings of development of the city were the immigrant, mostly Asian garment workers. So those stories are in the book. Uh, The restaurant workers that I grew up with, the cannery workers, documenting their stories. I felt privileged to have an opportunity to, to bundle them together. And yeah, that's it's almost sold out. It's only been out for a year and going to have to do another printing. That's great. You know, one of the things that's occurred with this podcast is that it's becoming an educational resource, an archive of case studies for people interested in learning about art and community. So, Ron, if somebody is listening to this and saying, that's an interesting path I'd like to explore, what would you share with them as they set out? We certainly need more storytellers. I would love to see some folks follow that path, that journey. I also, again, at the risk of sounding preachy, do advise young folks to pursue their passion. But then you know, part of the problem is figuring out what is your passion? Because what you think it is may just simply be what somebody told you, whether it's your parents or a teacher or whatever. But what is it inside that drives you? And... I feel blessed because I, mean, I haven't made a whole lot of money in my career, but I've had rewarding experiences based on the fact that I, I do the things that 
for me matter. And it's really about sharing stories, bringing them to light and helping open people's eyes to worlds that maybe they weren't aware of and then making connections. I think whatever people do should somehow serve the purpose of connecting all of us on some universal level. Storytelling is all about that. I'm sure, Bill, you know, the political divides are pretty sharp in this period. But, you know, when people are able to share stories across the divide, story is undeniable. A person's lived, shared story is their story and a solid ground on which you can build coalitions. So I, I'm not so much caught up in the a lot of the street activism that is certainly important in terms of creating social change, but I leave that to others. I, I, I like to find ways, again, to reach people on softer ground, which is where more people can stand. You know, Ron, one of the things that jumps out at me from your stories is how they combine, I don't know, the obvious and the hidden. The obvious are the parts of life that are common to everybody, you know, working hard, wanting your kids to be safe, wanting a roof over your head and a good education, wanting to live in a community that's not just safe, but celebrates who you are and all the different people that are in it, you know, that's the shared story, the one most folks will recognize. And then there's the hidden story, the painful stories this society is so good at avoiding. And one thing I'll say about that, one piece of my unforgotten Seattle is talking about my mother and my father being Chinese-American, having come here during the Chinese Exclusion Act period and the impact of that. Again, because the laws barred Chinese laborers from coming to the U.S. for so long, and the people who were coming here were laborers here uh, illegally, living under that shadow, having to dip and dodge to avoid the government and deportation and so forth, that is being repeated today. I think about the Central American refugees, the, the dreamers, that whole generation. I know, but many folks don't know what it's like to live like that. And I wanted to share that story to shine a light on, hey, do we realize what we're doing to these children, another generation? It's the same thing. Your book title, Unforgotten, really names the hard work of exhuming that long history and setting the record straight. Yeah. And it's because for my parents' generation, they're not going to share the story. They want to protect their children. And then as a child, you grow up with this vacuum and not a strong sense of who you are. And then what kind of person does that make you in terms of your children? So somewhere along the way, there has to be a reveal, a reckoning, and then some responsibility assigned to the authorities who made this happen. It's, it's not about victimizing, again, people who've been victimized already. You know, my friends, Mina Natrajan and Dipankar Mukherjee at Pangea World Theater, last month we had them on the show and they talked about this struggle, this terrible struggle we've had with difference in this country. Dipankar put it simply, he said, People avoid the blunt truth of it with the semantic cloak of complexity. He says we have to remove certain We words. have to remove certain words from our vocabulary like 
when we say, oh, it's very complex. No, dealing with race is very complex. Uh, and people who have the power to solve it start with these terminologies. Or dealing with patriarchy is extremely complex. Dealing with homophobia is a complex situation. There is nothing complex about it. If there's a de desire to solve it, you solve it. Uh, it's very simple for me to respect you. It's not a complicated thing. It's not complicated at all. And before we close, I know you've also been making some films that reflect on some of what we've been talking about here. Could you give folks an idea of what's out there? So there's a film titled If Tired Hands Could Talk, which is actually it's the garment workers exhibit. That's one. There's also Finding Home in Chinatown, a documentary about the Gungnyuk buildings before we actually decided to develop that as the Wing Luke Museum. And then there's also a film, One Generation's Time, which is about the murders of Salmi Domingo and Jean Viernes, the two Filipino cannery workers. And I partnered with uh, a couple of videographers, principally Shannon G, who's the um, director of the Seattle Channel. So those have been some other things I've worked on. And we'll provide links for those films in our show notes. That would be great. Ron, I'm so glad that we finally got our microphones in sync. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. And as usual, I'd also like to share my appreciation to our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you've been hearing, please pass it on to your community of friends and colleagues. Also know that our library of past episodes with stories from the likes of Pangea World Theater, The Fabulous Trickster, Normando Ismay, Emmy Awardee Fantastic Negrito and this show are now available through the Change the Story collection on our artandcommunity.com website and our show notes. Story, story, story. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland, and our theme and soundscape are by the stupendous Judy Munson. Our editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.com. And our inspiration rises up from the mysterious but ever-present presence of OOP 235. Until next time, please stay well, do good, and spread the good word. <laughs>